0: Welcome again to Change Your Mind About You, where we are on a journey together to awaken to our true identity. I'm your host, Kevin Mack, and today we're going to continue with our series of episodes on applying forgiveness. Today's topic will focus on repentance and discuss how the rite of baptism pictures the gospel message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In the previous episode, we discussed the critical importance repentance holds in the process of forgiveness. We stated that to repent meant to think differently. And the reason the world continues to suffer from sickness, sorrow, pain, and violence of all sorts is because humanity refuses to repent. We refuse to think differently. In our time, and throughout history, it's been and remains the function of the Holy Spirit to persuade us to repent. This is so because repentance marks the beginning of our acceptance of the gospel. Following his resurrection, Christ appeared to his disciples as they were gathered together. It was at this point that he commissioned them by saying in Luke, chapter 24 we're going to read verses 44 through 48 he said to them this is what I told you while I was still with you everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses the prophets and the Psalms then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures he told them this is what is written the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Now verse 47. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The commission given by Christ to his followers was, quote, Preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is the goal. But for that goal to be achieved, repentance is first required. We have said that repentance is a change of mind, a change in the way we think. To repent means to think differently. Yet what does it mean to think differently in the context of the forgiveness of sins? In other words, in what way must we think differently so that we may both receive and extend the forgiveness of sins? So where do we begin? I suggest we begin with the end in mind. In the previous episode, we stated that the ultimate goal behind forgiveness is to accept a different identity than we now perceive. That is upon accepting the forgiveness of our sins having our sins taken away we no longer identify with our bodies but instead identify with Christ so what we need to do is change our minds about our identity what this amounts to is we need to repent of our current identity rather in in order to accept or be restored to our eternal God-created identity. So how do the scriptures symbolize this change? Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6, where he begins by reviewing what the acceptance of the gospel message produces. Let's read verses 2 through 4 of Romans chapter 6. Paul wrote there, We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It is baptism, then, that symbolizes both the death of bodily identity, if you will, and the resurrection of what seems to be, for us, a new identity in the life of Christ. The Greek word translated baptize there in verse 3 of Romans 6 is baptizo, B-A-P-T-I-Z-O, which means to immerse or submerge. So the first thing the waters of baptism symbolizes is the doing away with bodily identity by submerging or burying it because very simply we bury the dead, don't we? For the body, we know, is subject to death because of sin. And that's what Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 10. <laughs> However, baptism also symbolizes a rising to life as a member of the body of Christ. For as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, which means believers or non-believers, slave or free. And we're all given the one spirit to drink. There is only one body into which the one spirit baptizes, that is, immerses us. And it says that in, in Ephesians 4, 6. There is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. So there is oneness, one body. And it is that body which signifies our true God-created identity. John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ by baptizing with water. His Baptism was a symbolic precursor, if you will, of what was to come in Christ, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire, as John told the crowds back in Matthew 3 and verse 11. Now, some more detail regarding the physical symbols used in baptism here. Water is used both to cleanse and quench thirst. But fire, with which Christ baptized, is a source of light, warmth, and purification. And both are the means of putting sin and suffering behind us. If we look at the historical uh, biblical story, if you will, the very first baptism was that of the great floodwaters that spared only Noah and his family, Because as it says in Genesis 6, verses 11 and 12, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all people on earth had corrupted their ways. Much like today, sin was what we saw in the world, and that was what was seen back then. As Peter stated, though, in 1 Peter 2 and 20 and verses 20 and 21, this flood was a type of baptism, putting a life of sin behind. That is the symbology of the great flood. It symbolically buried the sinful world, if you will, in the waters of baptism. That's what it symbolized. Also, there was a symbolic baptism of Israel as they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. They emerged from the waters of baptism free from those who had enslaved them in Egypt. Paul alludes to that in 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 1 and 2. While the Egyptians, who symbolized a life of slavery to sin, were drowned In the waters of the Red Sea baptism, as it says in Hebrews 11, verse 29. These two major biblical events demonstrate the significance of the use of water in the rite of baptism. Now let's turn to fire. Fire in the scriptures is a symbol of the Holy Spirit's presence. We can recall that from Acts chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, the, the tongues of fire. And as fire provides light during darkness, so the Holy Spirit enlightens us by leading us into all truth, as it says in John sixteen thirteen, And again, as fire provides warmth when we are cold, so the Holy Spirit is our comforter as it says in John fourteen twenty six. So that as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote there regarding the comfort that we receive from God, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So this comfort is to be extended from us. As we receive it, we extend it. It flows through us. Think of such comfort that comes when two people huddle together to keep warm. The the same principle applies to the work of the Holy Spirit that joins us together in Christ. So we've spoken about fire enlightening and fire providing warmth to comfort. Finally, fire is used to purify. The goal of the Holy Spirit's work is the purifying of the human heart. He teaches us that we are, as God created us, sinless, blameless, pure, and holy. That cannot be changed because doing so would be contrary to the immutable will of God. Just because we have come to believe that we are sinners, inhabiting a physical body subject to death, does not alter the truth of who we really are. Thus, the change in identity of which we speak is merely a change in our perception of ourselves and others, not reality. Reality has not changed. We are just in the process, or the Holy Spirit, rather, is in the process of doing the work of transforming, adjusting, rather, our perception so it comes into alignment with reality. Reality exists only by the will of God. And since God is spirit, as it says in John 4.24, and spirit only creates spirit, as it says in John 3, 6, the physical realm that we detect with our body's senses is not part of God's created reality. And because it is not, what appears to exist will be consumed by the purifying work that is the fire of the Holy Spirit. Here's how Peter put it in 2nd peter chapter 3 let's begin in verse 7 peter writes there the present heavens and earth the physical are reserved for fire for purification being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly let's let's clarify this phrase because This phrase, the destruction of the ungodly, means the destruction of that which is not of God. Which means the physical realm, where the perception of sinfulness reigns. It has nothing to do with the reality of our life. It has to do rather with the unreality of our perception. You and I are not going to die Because we cannot die, since we are part of Christ who is part of God. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. And the elements will melt in the heat. Verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. If all that physical stuff is to be destroyed, and we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. There is no way that we're going to be destroyed along with the physical earth and universe, is there? My friends, this does sound horrific on the surface. (laughs) But what I'm getting at here is I assure you that it is not. The purifying work of the Holy Spirit purifies our perception of reality. He does this by removing the obstructions that we have made. That is, this world characterized by sin, so that we are able to once again clearly behold God's perfect creation as signified by third, verse 13 above, where, where it's stated as the promise of the new heaven and the new earth. Now I realize that such an explanation shocks you. You may even think it to be totally insane and worthy of simply being ignored. But before you do, I would like to remind you of something. Accusations of insanity, persecutions, and simply being ignored is exactly what befell the prophets of old. Christ in many of his followers. God's servants have a history of mistreatment given to them by those in the world that we see. Yet they continue to make compassionate pleas for repentance to those that oppose them. Christ himself made such a plea. In Matthew chapter 23, let's read it in verses 37 and 38. Jerusalem... Jerusalem, he says. Now the term or the, the word Jerusalem means city of peace. And notice what he follows that by saying, You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. What he is emphasizing in these first words here is the utter insanity of the ways of our world. Can there possibly be the coexistence of peace with violence in a just society? His merciful plea continues. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. This is a beautiful word-picture of reuniting what has been separated and protecting all from the harm they have exposed themselves to. And he goes on and says, and you were not willing. Verse 38, look, your house is left to you desolate. Your house is where you live. And where we live in our current state of being is desolate, so says Christ. The Greek word translated desolate here is Eremos, which means solitary, lonely, or uninhabited. Eremos is spelled E-R-E-M-O-S. What he's getting at here is we insist on on being left alone, having a separate and independent identity. Yet we were created to love and be loved, which means we must join with others and live as one united identity. Thus, the identity we have chosen, the separate identities we have chosen, is at odds with our God-created best interests. Yet we do have a choice. Should we continue to needlessly suffer because we insist on being something that we're not? Or are we better off to repent, to change the way we think by accepting our God-given identity that frees us from the bondage to the way of life we have made for ourselves? The choice is ours. What will you choose? Well, my friends, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for joining me once again on Change Your Mind About You. I am your host, Kevin Mack, reminding you that repentance is a change in the way we think, and that change in thinking involves what we perceive as our true identity. The rite of baptism symbolically represents the death of our old identity associated with our physical bodies so that our original God-created identity can be restored to our awareness. Our bodies, along with the sin they are subject to, are not part of who we really are. They're temporary. We are eternal beings created in the image and likeness of God, without the need for the limitations of a physical environment that both deceives us and blinds us to the truth about ourselves. It will all one day be gone, simply because it is not necessary and does not exist according to God's will. Do you believe this? That question is something we all must ponder. So until next time, take good care, and be well, my friends.